Hi, Justin Kelly here, and welcome to the Scholars Podcast. This is a show where we feature scholars from the General Sir John Monash Foundation. The best, the brightest, the boldest, the bravest across all fields of academia, business, science, humanities, and the arts. The John Monash Scholarships are postgraduate scholarships awarded to outstanding Australians with leadership potential who wish to study overseas. The John Monash Scholarships are amongst the most important postgraduate scholarships currently available in Australia. Dr. Phoebe Williams, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First off, can we begin with your academic background? What are the degrees that you have? Oh, I'm one of those perpetual students. Um, I remember when I was in high school, actually, and my mum saying to me, God, I think you're going to be an academic. But And thinking, no, that sounds incredibly boring. But here I am still, oh, I've just finished studying, but I'm sure more's around the corner. Um, so my first degrees were, I started off with a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts, and I then actually transferred into a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Commerce. Um, and so I finished them back in 2005. And in Commerce, I majored in Development Economics, which is what sort of started my first interest in global development um, and health outcomes that are tied to that. Um, after those two degrees, I went into postgraduate medicine um, at the University of Sydney, and I did that with an honours project looking at um, a malaria program in Uganda. Um, and then after I finished medical school, I did my master's in global health science um, at the University of Oxford, um, then started some of my clinical training and did my specialty training um, in paediatrics and now in infectious diseases. And um, recently I've just completed my PhD um, in clinical paediatric infectious diseases. Um, and I've also done a diploma of child health along the way in there as well. But um, I, I still feel like I spend most evenings looking things up and learning new things. So I don't think even it doesn't matter what degrees you have. I think it, we're always still learning in life, aren't we? Are you done now or, or is there more to go? I don't think there's more. Well, I, I'm about to move into my postdoctoral research career. And to me, even though that's not a university degree, I sort of feel like it is in a way starting all over again um, with a new program because it's going to be very, very different um, and, you know, a new level of independence and, and research skill that I'll need to um, find. So, yeah, I, I think I'm done from a, a letters point of view. Um, but I still feel like I'm always starting at the beginning in some way. Now, tell me about your application to be a, a John Monash Scholar. Um, so I actually applied twice for the Monash Scholarships. Um, I first applied um, way back when I was doing that Development Economics and Science degree at ANU um, and didn't have any luck. I didn't even get an interview that time. Um, and then, um, as we've just chatted about, I went on to medicine and wanted to then do further um, research, clinical research work. And then when I was applying for my PhD, I reapplied for a Monash scholarship. Um, so that was in 2014 um, or 2015, sorry. Um, and um, was lucky enough that time to get through to the interview round um, and to get through and be um, one of the scholars of that cohort, um, which I can't believe was five years ago. It feels like it was yesterday um, and it was a, a really um, huge part in me being able to undertake a PhD um, overseas and the skills that I learnt by um, 
being able to be embedded in an overseas institution were really um, second to none and I feel really lucky that I've then been able to bring them back here to Australia and to try and join Australia into those networks, those global networks um, that I made through my postgraduate studies. And I think that's really what, you know, Monash scholarships are trying to achieve, uh, give us the opportunity to go overseas and get those skills, but importantly, then bring them back to Australia. And so um, I, I've certainly followed that path and I, I feel really lucky to have had the opportunity to do so. So where did you do your PhD? Um, I did it at the University of Oxford, um, but I did it um, in England and then in Kenya. So um, Oxford has what's called a tropical medicine network with many um, sites that are established across Southeast Asia and Africa. Um, and one of their, their biggest research sites is based in rural Kenya um, in a little coastal town called Kalifi, uh, which is about 10 hours from Nairobi or two hours from Mombasa, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that's where I was based for the bulk of my PhD, um, but initially went to the UK first of all um, as well because I had a, a surprise baby that, that joined us for that trip along with my other older kids. Um, and while we had initially planned to go to Kenya for the entirety of it, um, we used the residency requirements to instead first go to the UK um, and be based in Oxford so that that baby had a little bit of time to grow so he could take his anti-malarial medications before we um, headed off to Kenya together. What's it like in Kenya? I've never been. Um, Kenya's beautiful. East Africa is somewhere that I've spent a lot of um, my career. Um, so when I was doing my development economics undergraduate degree, that was the first time I took a trip to Africa. I think it was in 2003 um, and it had a huge impact on me um, and I started a, a non-governmental organisation um, when I was in medical school that um, meant that I then spent three months of every year in either Kenya or Uganda um, throughout my early medical training. Uh, then I was lucky enough to do my medical elective in Ethiopia at Dr. Ka one of Dr. Catherine Hamlin's um, fistula hospitals in rural Ethiopia in Bahida. Um, and then um, I always had this hope that I could return to work in Africa when I had more skills um, because as a medical student um, we definitely didn't do much medical work because that would have been inappropriate because we don't do it here in Australia so I'm never someone that advocates people going over and practicing their skills in other health settings um, but rather we did some sort of development work and lived in communities and, and built schools and um, just some really grassroots things like that um, and so being able to return to Kenya when I had um, finished my specialty training in paediatrics was um, very helpful um, because I finally felt like I could actually assist on the wards, you know, by collaborating very much so, though, with the local people, not just going in there and taking my ideas, but going in there and spending the first few months getting to know the place. Um, but at the same time, it's incredibly challenging, and I thought I was quite well prepared for what, living and working in Khalifi would be like for my PhD, having spent sort of 12, 13 years going to and from East Africa every year. Um, but to be in a hospital setting and sort of every day seeing um, the reality of malnutrition and inaccessible medications and having no ability to provide children with some simple ventilatory support that we can provide 
um, here in Australia um, can be quite um, challenging and um, and certainly it was it was as, as difficult as, as it was amazing. Um, it definitely a, a yin and yang type process. It sounds very confronting. Yeah, yes. No, it, it is, but it's all the more reason that um, that's what inspires me in my research and keeps me working at midnight every night when my kids are in bed, so um, trying to close that global child health inequality gap. Do you think us in Australia, do you think we have any idea of what the health system is like in, say, a country like Kenya? No, I, I didn't even know, and that's even with my background in um, as I said, in spending so many years in East Africa and even having, having undertaken a medical elective in Ethiopia, um, it's, it's very easy to read about it and to try and um, understand it through that or from even visiting the countries. But until you're actually embedded in a hospital and every day doing the ward rounds and watching kids that you know need dialysis be unable to access dialysis where you know in Australia they'd be hooked up within an hour or kids that you know have a, a cancer diagnosis and you have nowhere to refer them to whereas in Australia in an hour again they'd have a multidisciplinary team linked into them with amazing social support as well um, it's just it's an incredibly it's to think that we're all living in the same time but have such different access to um, different levels of health care is a, a, a massive global inequity. Now, I've heard that you founded a student organisation called Hands for Help. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, that um, Hands of Help was something that I started um, after that first trip to East Africa. Um, and it wasn't something I actually ever set out to start because I think the world has plenty of NGOs. Um, but it just came about incidentally. Um, when I started medical school, um, I was in a, a, at a medical school that had a pretty large cohort, sort of 350 people in each year group. Um, and as I started chatting to people, I realised most people had really gone into medicine um, with a strong altruistic passion. Um, and there was a lot of interest in things like, you know, partaking in trips with groups like MSF at some point in everyone's career, but everyone also realised that that was probably a solid 10 years away from something that they might be able to do. Um, and so I, when I had initially travelled through East Africa as a um, development economics um, major, I had done some volunteering work, work with a group in Uganda who um, worked with local communities to um, build schools where they were missing um, or refurbish schools that were incredibly run down. And that was a really sustainable organisation that I'd come across who is still has a very, very strong presence in rural Uganda. Um, and basically when I realised there were lots of medical students that were keen to have a similar experience to what I'd had, um, I put out a bit of an announcement and said, would anyone be keen if I try and organise a trip this summer holidays um, for us to go back and work with that organisation? That was Soft Power Education. They're a UK-based group um, but with a, a permanent presence in Uganda. Um, and um, before I knew it, we had sort of 45 people wanting to come and we needed to raise about $20,000 to refurbish the school we'd been allocated to. But over a lot of um, hard work that year, we ended up fundraising about $120,000. Um, and so because of that, we felt we needed to formalise things. And that's how we ended up um, with a... Uh, um, 
a formal uh, registering ourselves as a formal charity and that's how Hands of Help was born Um, and then it just sort of propelled from there we then had medical students joining us from all across Australia every year and more and more schools that were undertaken each year and starting some grassroots health projects Um, and one thing led to another. And what is it like now? Um, so now our focus um, is I unfortunately don't have the time to coordinate groups of medical students anymore. You're busy enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it, that was a sort of two or three day a week job in itself. Um, so now the, the focus of our work is on supporting some grassroots health projects um, that are still based in those countries in East Africa, in Kenya and Uganda. Um, and at the moment we're sponsoring 22 kids that um, were um, known to be sort of um, street children that were begging on the street that had some pretty horrible early life experiences um, for them to be able to attend school. Um, And we also fund um, some ongoing medical care for some kids that um, are unable to access it otherwise. So, um, I have ongoing connections with the hospital that I worked with in in Kenya and if, um, for example, a child needs a simple procedure that we know would save their life um, but costs two or three thousand dollars and can't be performed at any of the government hospitals, Hands of Help funds something like that. Um, and um, so it's it's sort of grassroots health and education projects and we have full-time workers in, in Kenya that are, are running our projects for us and um, making sure going in and checking on everyone that's involved and enrolled in them um, on a weekly basis to make sure that um, all the money is going in the right places and we're not losing anything anywhere and that um, we're achieving what we sort of set out to achieve. And so now you're living and working in Sydney as a doctor. What's it been like for you working as a doctor during what has been a very challenging time for all of us with the coronavirus? Yeah, no, it's been an, an interesting year for the, for everyone, hasn't it? Um, it's been, um, I'm actually working in the specialty of infectious diseases at the moment. So I've been sort of um, right in the thick of this COVID crisis. Um, and I'm actually also working in the part of Australia that's had the highest prevalence of coronavirus. Um, and even though that has been incredibly low because we've not evolved to be anything like um, some of our northern neighbours who've had a much tougher time of it than us, um, it certainly has meant that it's been a busy year. Um, there's, to, to be honest, the biggest impact that we've seen it have on um, children is a, a big delay in presentations and a lot of let a lot less presentations than normal. Um, Many people who have a sick kid are always assuming because of what they see in the media, they're assuming any sickness or any illness signs are coronavirus and um, will often head to a coronavirus clinic for the first couple of days and get a test done there and wait for that result. And then when their child's still unwell three days later, they sort of finally come to ED when they've got a negative coronavirus result thinking, oh gosh, what else could it be? And often by that point, they've had sepsis for 24 hours or um, we've seen a couple of kids present with very late um, oncology diagnoses um, who had to be in quarantine, for example, because they'd just moved from overseas. Um, And and the biggest impact we've seen is on kids um, having um, less access to healthcare. And that's probably been due to a mixture of community fear about coming in um, and all also people just attributing really any sign and symptom at the moment to coronavirus when we just have 
um, an incredibly low community prevalence. So the, the secondary impacts on kids and on our healthcare system have been far greater than the virus itself. I know there are a lot of countries working on developing a, a vaccine. As a as a doctor, why how does it take so long to try to to try to find a vaccine to to develop a vaccine? I think vaccines are touted as a holy grail, but I will be incredibly surprised if we ever get a highly efficacious vaccine against coronavirus. Um, it's incredibly hard. Basically, these viruses are, are very smart at just shifting even a tiny little bit of their genetic material um, and ev evolving to evade any vaccine um, or even immunity that our um, that we can generate as a population. So um, coronavirus is obviously a virus. So when you think of something like influenza, which is also a virus, and the reason so many people get sick with influenza each year is because it just constantly mutates and shifts out there in the community. And so people can get reinfected um, every year. And sometimes we get these, you know, huge influenza pandemics and that's when influenza goes into an animal and you get a shift that occurs in the animal and then comes back into humans. And that's when we've seen things like bird flu and swine flu. And those ones um, are, are brand new sort of strains, if you like, that humans have never been exposed to. Um, and they're the strains that can cause huge um, mortality burdens. And this coronavirus is just similar to that. We actually already have four coronaviruses that have already um, circulated in humans for decades that are seasonal coronaviruses that we already used to see in kids. And they called, always caused a sort of very mild cold-like um, illness in, in children. And this is just, you know, like those influenzas that come from animals, this is just a a zoonotic coronavirus that has come from another animal, um, probably a bat, um, that has then managed to spread through the global population so quickly, predominantly because it causes such mild illness um, in most people. And so people are actually, you know, well enough to walk around with it, which is why it's been so much more severe than the other coronaviruses, novel coronaviruses that we've had like SARS and MERS. Um, but so if you can imagine trying to catch a virus that's capable of shifting and mutating so quickly in humans and in animals um, with an efficacious vaccine, it's incredibly challenging. And even if scientists do manage to pin down that um, ability to, um, you know, tailor something that is quite efficacious, it's still a very, very long process to get vaccines approved to be used in humans. So there's a number of um, phases that all medical trials, including vaccines, have to go through, and they can be expedited in the setting of a global pandemic. Um, but nevertheless, there's a number of safety steps that need to um, be undertaken, and um, there's a lot to understand with how a vaccine works um, before it could ever be rolled out on a global scale. And who knows if by that point um, the global, you know, the, the the circulating virus might have shifted again. So. Um, it will be interesting to see how vaccines evolve. Most of us that work in the field are wondering if this might be our big leap in science um, and we might look to um, discover a vaccine that works in a completely novel way because what we know is that most virus vaccines have been, have been very difficult to, um, in, especially in these viruses that do shift and drift around with their genetic material, they've been very difficult to, to create. So in all of your medical training and study, had you prepared yourself for the fact that there might be some sort of 
global pandemic like this? Yeah, pandemic preparedness is something that um, they teach you a lot about in medical school. Um, the irony is I actually gave the first year medical students at Sydney Uni a lecture on pandemic preparedness um, in, oh, it must have been the first week of February. And obviously I spent about half my lecture talking about this virus that was emerging in um, Asia that we needed to keep a close eye on. But it is it is something that you learn a lot about in medical school, um, mainly because the world Aspect, like the infectious disease and global public health world did know that we were due another pandemic. You know, our last influenza major global pandemic pandemic, sorry, was um, almost 100 or a little over 100 years ago. Um, and it is simply um, the nature of these viruses that every so often um, they will mutate um, and drift and shift to cause a global pandemic. And um, one of my mentors, um, Professor David Isaacs, who I work with um, in paediatric infectious diseases, has, has written a fantastic book about pandemics and he call, calls Mother Nature the world's greatest terrorist because um, really we can't evade or evolve um, faster than these pandemics um, will ever emerge um, and I think they're, they're great levelers to remind humankind that um, Mother Nature or, or whatever it is that is behind these um, pandemics is smarter and faster than us. Do you think it will be a case that we will, like, it will always be with us? I think there's a strong likelihood of that happening. We've sort of got a few options. We've, As I said, we've already had four seasonal coronaviruses that have been circulating um, for decades, um, but then the novel coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, um, SARS, the original SARS, so the first SARS that um, emerged at the turn of the century in Asia, um, that did burn out, and that's mainly because it caused a much, much more severe, severe virus than this um, SARS-CoV-2, um, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, um, sorry, a much more severe illness than SARS-CoV-2 um, does. So um, SARS-1 burnt out quite quickly because as soon as someone got it, they pretty much ended up in hospital um, most of the time in intensive care and they had a very high mortality rate. Um, and so it was therefore very quick and easy to contact trace anyone who had been um, exposed to that index case and almost all the cases ended up themselves sort of quarantined in hospital because of the severity of the illness. Um, whereas this SARS-CoV-2 virus is proving to be very different. Um, as I said before, it's a much more mild virus and a mild illness. Um, and so it's not looking like it will be one that, that burns out. And it may well be something that ends up being um, incorporated into our seasonal virus um, group like influenza and that we just do end up um, seeing each season. But it's it's very, very difficult to know at this stage. We've seen with COVID-19 that everything changes week to week. Two weeks ago, we had lots of news on hydroxychloroquine in the Lancet and 24 hours ago, we've had the Lancet retracting that study. So we've seen that everything that we learn with COVID-19 often changes very quickly. Do you have a view on how Australia has coped with coronavirus by shutting the borders, social distancing. Yeah, yeah, no it's been it's been a very a very tricky thing for our um, government to have to manage. It's an incredibly fine balance between um, 
managing the health impact and the economic impact of this virus. And we know that um, economic downturns can have greater impacts on human health um, than pandemics. We've seen that with um, some Ebola outbreaks that happened in West Africa and um, the health outcomes in those countries for a long time were much, much worse than any of the the number of Ebola cases that occurred. Um, So it's a really fine balance and it's especially tricky with a virus that's evolving so quickly. Um, But the government has been informed by a really fantastic group of experts um, called the AHPPC um, and they release statements quite regularly actually if you just Google AHPPC statements. Um, And it's that group of experts that are 24-7 reading and um, digesting all the global evidence. Um, these are all, you know, professors in epidemiology, infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, um, and that group have worked incredibly hard over the last few months to constantly advise the government um, on their steps in their pandemic response, which was already, you know, Australia's already had a pandemic response, and what they have been doing are is just following those those steps in responding, um, but guided by the experts in the AHPPC. Um, And we have been incredibly lucky to end up being a country that has had a very, very low prevalence of coronavirus overall. Um, And a a large proportion of that is due to um, how well it's been managed. Um, But um, I think there's been a bit of difficulty when different levels of government have then sent out different messages. And I think that's created a lot of um, angst and anxiety in the community um and it's but it's it's hard you know I'm I'm glad I'm not in their shoes it would be very hard being a a leader through this and trying to respond to the public as well as the health professionals at once agreed so what was it um that made you want to get into clinical pediatrics um I actually used to want to be a vet when I was younger um and then when I was 14 I um got sick with meningococcal meningitis, actually, Um, and I was very, very sick. I sort of scored myself a helicopter ride, but I was completely unconscious throughout all that um, to the Children's Hospital at Westmead, where I was then admitted for a few weeks, spent a while in intensive care, Um, and I was in year 10 when that happened, and um, I remember when I was recovering on the ward watching the doctors do their daily job and thinking, wow, what an awesome job. This looks really interesting. And I was quite involved in my care and asking them why they were doing what they were doing and how did they pick that medicine and why don't I need a drip anymore? And um, it it was really that experience that um, drove me into medicine. Um, And then when I was doing my psychology, uh, my science and commerce degree, I did a major in psychology and through my psychology major, um, the way I supported myself through uni was working as a therapist for kids with autism. Um, And I absolutely loved that job um, and still remaining close contact with many of those families that I worked with. Um, And um, so that was really what then drove me into paediatrics um, because I loved working with kids and I really enjoyed medicine. Um, and certainly then once you go into medical school and you undertake your paediatric term, you realise it's just a completely unique area of medicine where, you know, the hospitals you work in, um, you know, we I walk around the wards and have clown doctors serenade me with ukuleles and um, the star bright room walk past and blow bubbles in my face and it's an incredibly... Um, satisfying, if not sometimes very challenging um, job, and I wouldn't want to work in in any other field. I'm very lucky. So what's your advice then to someone who's thinking about a career 
in medicine because you, you often talk to people who will swear off the particular field that they're in. Don't ever do this. Don't ever do that. My advice is don't do that. It sounds as though it sounds as though that that's not something you're going to say. Yeah, no, look, I, I absolutely love my job. It's incredibly hard work and it's come with incredibly long hours um, and the specialty training also can be um, just have huge expectations of you and you invest years of your life to studying for exams that you get one shot to sit. Um, and I think if you asked anyone in my family, my husband or my parents or my siblings, none of whom are medical, um, if having watched me go through medicine, if they'd encourage others into medicine, they'd say absolutely not. And that's probably because they've seen how many um, family events that I've had to miss, how many Easter's I've been working, how many night shifts I've had to go to after the Christmas lunch. Um, and so I guess from an outsider um, and, and certainly how um, hard I've had to study along the way. Um, and then you get to the end of it and, um, you know, there's um, it's, it's certainly not like, banking where I'd probably be on half a million dollars a year or something by now with this many degrees and this, this much experience. Um, so, you know, you work very, very hard, um, but at the end of the day, um, the main reward that you get is the incredible job satisfaction. Um, and I have four kids myself, um, two of them already are very interested in pursuing a career in medicine, and I'd absolutely support them to do that because, um, when you're the one that is able to undergo this roller coaster, you see that the hard times are really worth it, and there is there is no job like it. And um, it's a real, um, it's a very humbling experience to be able to be part of children and families' lives when they're going through the experiences that they're going through, and to feel that you can um, make that experience a little bit better. Well said, Dr. Phoebe Williams. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.